a couple of things. A uh, number of you have asked about uh, how do we give support for the Oso mudslide victims and that sort of thing. Uh, Dave Weed, who's the chairman of our church, is also a firefighter, and he went up there this weekend. I don't know if he's back. Um, I haven't seen him this morning. So, But uh, we threw a couple of things around as a board, and he's gone up there to check it out, and he'll bring back a recommendation. And uh, when he does, then we'll let you know where we think the funds could be best channeled. Uh, that's going to be a long-term recovery. And there's a lot of grandstanding and photo ops going on with uh, people who aren't really helping. So we'll let Dave give us a read, and then we'll give a word back to you next Sunday where we could channel the support to. Does that make sense? So um, we wanted you to be aware of that. So that's a good thing. So if you're new or visiting here this morning, welcome. I hope you enjoy us as a church family. And uh, we are in a, a series called And It Shall Come to Pass. You can see the uh, banner behind me, and I think they did a great job on that. <clears throat> what we've been focusing on uh, the last couple Sundays is the things that God talked about in the past and how he brought them to fruition in Jesus to convince people that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To convince, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know him, that you should place your faith and trust in him. And uh, we've been looking at the Jewish festivals and how God incorporated a lot of what happened on what we know as Good Friday, Easter weekend, that week um, in, into the whole life of Jesus and how it played out. And so we're going to look at some more of that this morning and tie it all together. And then next week we're going to take it and go from where we are now to what it looks like in the future and talk about the fall festival. So I think it's going to be intriguing. I think you'll like it. And I think it's uh, well worth um, spending time on. Let's uh, pray before we get started. Father, when we come in uh, to these kind of things, we're dealing with your turf and territory, and none of us is an expert on it. Um, the Jews had the Torah for 2,000 years, and they missed when you came. And so um, it's uh, maybe easy to be cocky and think we know better, but the truth is uh, we could miss it too. So we're, we're just wanting to humbly come and say, there's some things we've picked up over time where we can see insights in how you have so intricately laid out some things. And we want to pay attention to that. As we come into Easter and all that that means and all that that is for us and all that you've done for us, we... We want to have a serious heart towards it. And we pray this morning that uh, if what I'm saying is accurate, that your uh, spirit would just uh, validate that and, and bring it home. And Lord, we seek you for many who are not inside the walls this morning, who are, uh, have many better options in their mind and are being misled and taken down the wrong path. A lot of us were there at one time as well. May you help find a way for them to find you as well. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. So what we've been saying is that many of the things that God put in the Old Testament were dress rehearsals or harbingers. Harbingers are, is another word for signs, all right, or, or pictures. And that God is really into object lessons. Uh, well, if you ever go up and, and help Shannon with the children, which, by the way, contrary to popular opinion, where most people say, oh, that's the most awful thing and I'd rather die before I do it, it's actually incredibly entertaining, and uh, he does a fabulous job. But one of the things Shannon's really good at is object lessons. If you've ever been up there, you know that. He's really good at putting object lessons together. Well, that's after the heart of God. God is really good at object lessons. And I want to take you back just to a, a brief review of what we covered. 
We go all the way back to this story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember? And this at the time, this was the nation of Israel, right? Besides a few other people. And uh, it wasn't very big. But God began to start a dialogue, a, a, a journey, a picture of what he was going to accomplish in the future. Now, when you look at this story, this is 2,000 years ago from when Jesus showed up. So if we're looking at our time, that's 4,000 years ago. We're looking at a story right here this morning that is 4,000 years old. Right? And so God started uh, with this object lesson. He used Isaac as the object lesson and said, I want you to draw, I want to play out, I want you to do this play for me. I want you to do this drama for me and, and carry it out. And he did, and then he stopped it right at the tragic moment and said, thank you for following through, but Isaac, you're not the sacrifice. And as Abraham very prophetically said, God himself will provide a lamb. I.e., God will provide a Messiah that will be uh, in this uh, vein of what Isaac carried out in terms of a sacrifice that would be offered for us. And so God put this object lesson in motion and then 500 years later, he put another one in motion that we're familiar with. And that is the Passover, where Egypt came out from under the oppression of Egypt and was freed. And the night that they um, were freed is called the Passover. And it was the night that the angel of the Lord passed over any house that had the blood covering the mantelpiece, i.e. you're protected. If you're in that house, you're protected. If you're not, then you weren't protected and the firstborn of the nation of Egypt were killed, both man and animal. And so God put that in motion 500 years later. So these two object lessons have been in the mind of the nation of Israel for 2,000 and 1,500 years. We know them as stories from Sunday school, right? We know them as uh, stories that we've grown up with. But they are a lot more um, involved than what we realize. We talk about the Passover became uh, institutionalized and became the Seder service and the idea of the memorial. And we walked through the symbolism of that. We said the candle, right? The dad would go through the house with a candle. If you think about it, he had to go through with a candle. There was no electricity. There was no flashlights in that day, right? But the candle represents the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Then he had a feather, which represented the Holy Spirit, and then a spoon, which represented the cross. And they were hunting through the house for a piece of leaven that the mother had hid. And when they found it, the dad would take the spoon and take the feather and sweep that leaven onto that spoon. And then they'd put it in linen. And then they would go outside and there was kind of a communal or community or cul-de-sac bonfire. And they all got out there and they all threw it into the fire together. And it burned up with the idea that Jesus had to be taken outside the camp to die for our sins wasn't inside the camp, it was outside the camp. So Jesus did not die in the temple. He died out at Golgotha on a hill outside the actual city. And all of that was uh, wrapped into those first two um, object lessons. As we said, these were dress rehearsals or signs or wonders or harbingers of things uh, that would come. But there's a lot, there's more parallels than even the ones we've just covered. If you think about the Easter week as we're rapidly approaching next Sunday is Palm Sunday and you got uh, Zach's invitation to join us on those different events. One of the uh, hallmark events is the triumphal entry of Jesus into uh, Jerusalem and people got their cloaks on the ground or palm branches. You can see there they're waving and he's in the midst there with a white shawl and coming through the crowd. 
And <clears throat> most of us know this story. What we don't know is the exact day that Jesus rode in was also the day that all the Passover lambs were brought into uh, Jerusalem and into the temple court. And as they got ready for Passover, as they got ready for the nation to celebrate it, the same day he rode in, the Passover lambs came in. And so Jesus came into Jerusalem as the Passover lamb. And uh, it's a phenomenal parallel there of what he's doing. Then we also know that, uh, we know the famous story of Jesus over flipping the money changers table. Now this, this story has some context to it that uh, we should play out a little bit. What actually started out in the temple uh, was actually a good thing and actually meant to help because as people were all over the world and as they tried to come to Passover, it was rather difficult in that day or age if you had to take a sheep or a, a bull with you for the sacrifice. That was rather hard. If you think about traveling 1,500 miles and making sure your sheep or bull gets there all in one piece and isn't blemished on that journey somehow... Um, that's kind of a hard thing. They didn't have their SUVs with a trailer. They just loaded in. They could haul it off, right? I mean, you're talking about walking behind a camel or a donkey or that kind of stuff. And so, it be, and especially if you had to come across, like on the Mediterranean, across a ship, that was really undoable. So what happened was the original heart and mindset behind this was actually good. The temple priests and the Levites said, look, it is very difficult for people to bring animals with them on long journeys like that. Let's have animals available for them so that when they get here, they can purchase an animal. It's way more cheaper. And as we say in America, it's more convenient, right? Go up to the vending machine, put your dollar in, out pops Passover lamb, you're good to go, right? (laughs) And so it was actually very helpful what they were trying to do because they said, look, it's difficult on people. Let's do that. Well, that, <coughs> as most things human, started to twist. And so what happened was, from we will provide animals for you, went to you can only use our animals. And obviously our animals are purer and more unblemished and more spotless than anything you could bring. So ours will cost a little bit more, but they're kosher, they're pure, and they will work. right? And then the other problem they had was that during that time... Um, People would come from over and they had money that came from all over the world, right? All sorts of different currency and different weights and that kind of thing. And they said, you know, it's really hard to figure out what this money all is worth, all these different denominations in terms of when people come from the different nations of the world. So what we're going to do is let's just use temple currency. So what you had to do is you could exchange your money for temple currency and then they would use that because it was all uniform. Again, not a bad idea. But we have a lot of people and it takes a lot of time. So we're going to have to charge you a little bit to exchange your money for our temple money. And so that became usury. And what happened is this became a multi, multi-billion dollar kind of monopoly. They had a monopoly on the whole thing because you had to use their animals. You had to use their money and you had to come at their time. And so you were held hostage To worship God, you basically had to pay through the nose. And that's what Jesus got upset about. And so when he came to the temple, uh, we know the story of him flipping the tables and creating a whip and driving people out. But how does that pertain to the feast and the Passover? What was he doing? He was cleaning his father's house of the leaven. He was getting rid of the leaven so they'd be ready for the feast of unleavened bread. Driving out the leaven. 
Also, the Passover lamb had to be inspected. Right here you see the Pharisees questioning Jesus. And Jesus himself uh, came under intense questioning during this time period. Uh, They would come to him in the temple courts and they said to him, where do you get this authority or by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus said, well, let me ask you a question. You ever had God do that to you? You ever come to God with a question and he comes back to you? I've done that. It doesn't usually work out too well, so... If you haven't tried it, probably wise idea not to. But, um, but they said, he said, so let me ask you a question. He said, John's baptism, is it of man or is it of God? And they went away, mumble, mumble, grutter, grutter, mumble, mumble, right? Mutter, mutter. And uh, they came back and they said, well, if we say it was of man, everybody acknowledges John as a prophet. Everybody knows what he did was from God, so the people will stone us, so we can't say that. But if we say from God... Then we have to agree with him, and we don't think he's right, so we're not going to agree with him. So they came back with a very astute, politically correct answer. They said, we don't know, right? And Jesus said, all right, then neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Right? They inspected the lamb. They could not find fault with him. They also came, uh, he came under inspection from Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. If you remember the night of the trial, uh, they hastily put together a thing and they brought all kinds of witnesses. And it seems like they didn't have enough time to get their witnesses lined up because everybody had something contrary and they were kind of just shooting themselves in the foot. And in an act of absolute desperation, where Pilate or Caiaphas is beside himself and doesn't know what to do. He says to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And Caiaphas rends his garment in one of the most ironic acts of history. And I'll show you why on two levels this morning. But he rends his garment and says, you have heard the blasphemy. What's your verdict? And the verdict was unanimous, he should die. Jesus is one of the few people in history who was put to death for who he claimed to be, not what he did. Think about that. If, we, if you look in the Everett Herald or you watch the court system, people are always on trial for what? What they did. Jesus was not on trial for what he did. He was on trial for who he claimed to be. And so Caiaphas... Uh, says, you've heard the blasphemy, and they condemned Jesus to death. But they couldn't find any fault with him. They just didn't agree with his assessment of who he said he was. But they couldn't find any fault with him. None of the stories matched up, and so he passed inspection that way as the Passover lamb. And then he went before Herod. And Herod wanted to do some tricks and maybe do a miracle or two just so he could be entertained. And Jesus said nothing, and Herod didn't like it, but he couldn't find anything wrong with him, so he sent him back to Pilate. Then Pilate says, when he's looking at him, he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, is that what you've heard or somebody told you? He says, look, don't you understand I have the right to put you, keep you alive or put you to death? And Jesus says, you would have no power if it hadn't been given to you from above. And at that point, Pilate freaks. There's a bunch of other things going on in the drama. But he desperately tries everything he can do to release Jesus and to get him out of uh, his jurisdiction And uh, three, four times he comes up against a dead-end wall. And in the end, he washes his hands of the affair. But he's still guilty. But he could not find, Pilate could not find 
any fault with Jesus. And therefore, through a whole series, political and religious, the Passover lamb passes inspection. The lamb is unblemished. And it fulfills the Passover uh, of the Seder service that the animal presented had to be spotless and without, without blemish. We came to uh, this picture right here. and We said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was actually John the Baptist that used that quote. But we said there's immaculate and incredible timing tied to uh, the crucifixion. At nine in the morning when Jesus was being uh, roped and nailed to the cross, the Passover lamb at the exact same time was being tied and hung on the horns of the altar in preparation for the Passover. We said that at noon, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the land and that there was darkness outside. And then at the ninth hour, which we would call three in the afternoon, uh, Jesus breathed his last. He said it is finished. And that was the exact moment that when he said it is finished, the Passover lamb was sacrificed in the, t- in the temple. And you have to picture this because we don't often get this picture. We, we've got the picture of the cross really well, but we don't have a picture of the temple really well. We know what was happening in the cross, but let me help get your mind around what was going on in the temple because you will recognize this and it will ring true to you. In the temple... Jerusalem was about 600,000 people, maybe 650. During Passover, it was two and a half to three million, so usually around two and a half million people that were gathered from people all over the world. And so on that day, on the day of Passover, the entire temple complex and the entire temple court was crowded with thousands upon thousands of people. And they were singing the Hillel. And the Hillel, if you look in your Bible, is Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. Those are actually, we call them Psalms. They're songs. We don't have the original music to them. We don't know how they were sung. And we don't sing Hebrew, so it's kind of all lost on us, right? But those were the songs that they, the, the songs of ascent as they went up to Jerusalem as the songs they're singing. So the entire temple courtyard is filled with thousands. Just think uh, the Seahawks parade and think 700,000 singing, marching up, going up to Jerusalem. And you have the kind of idea. And they were singing these songs of ascent as they went up. And as they got close to the time... When it was happening, they would all worship and then the high priest would offer the Passover lamb. Right? While that's happening, outside the city on a rock called Golgotha, Jesus is on the cross hanging for the sins of the world. And when he breathes his last, the sac- Passover lamb is sacrificed and thousands upon thousands are cheering and saying, Amen and Hallelujah. The discrepancy and the irony is absolutely mind-blowing when you understand that. Even more mind-blowing. We talked about Caiaphas last week. Remember, Caiaphas was the one who was the high priest that year. And we said, can you imagine what it would be like being a high priest that year where you're standing there, you're facing the bronze altar. Behind you is the Holy of Holies with the curtain. You sacrifice the Passover lamb and the curtain behind you is ripped from asunder top to bottom and torn in two. This is not a linen closet curtain. This is a curtain that's woven together, has cherubim engraved all in it. And it was said in history that that curtain, if you hooked, hitched up two teams of horses and pulled them up in some directions, they would not be able to tear that curtain apart. And so we're talking about a substantial piece of fabric. And that fabric was hanging there. And as Caiaphas sacrifices the Passover lamb, the temple behind him, or the curtain behind him, is rent in two. What is that a symbol of? Well, it's a symbol of, in Scripture, you find all over the place 
when something serious or calamity is coming or kings are in trouble and an invading army is coming or death of a loved one or something is taken and there's immense sorrow, people would rend their clothing. They would tear it as a sign of their heart's been rent. Their heart's been ripped open. And you may have experienced that in life. You may have been where a close loved one has died. Or you may have been uh, where um, you had a great job and then you got fired. And, and you just, what next? What do I do next? Or uh, something uh, traumatic, something where, where just you're, you're done, right? This rent heart place, you don't have any comeback for it. And so this, as Caiaphas was saying, the curtain gets torn in two. What is God saying? My heart is rent. My son just died on the cross. And Caiaphas doesn't get it. Can you imagine the irony of that? Stunning, stunning intricacy in terms of uh, heading towards that. When we look at not just Passover, but then Passover was the um, beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we have the death and burial of Jesus. The whole idea of unleavened bread is there's no, no leaven in the house. And leaven, in this case, symbolized sin. And so the house had to be swept of sin. And Jesus had no sin. He was the pure, spotless Lamb of God. And so he was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right? And then we come, of course, to what we're looking forward to in Easter and the Resurrection. But this also is on the holiday because within the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Feast of First Fruits, or what we would call the Wave Offering. And so... Uh, coming from a farming background, you would farm and you'd raise your crops and then you'd bring in the first fruits, what were called the first fruits. During the spring, during these harvests, it would be barley. And so the first of the barley, a sheaf of barley would be brought in and the priests would, would wave the offering to the Lord and that was called the wave offering or the offering of first fruits. We understand this because we now call that the what? The tithe, right? The idea of the tithe comes from the offering of first fruits and the idea there is you bring your best to the Lord you bring your your uh, special to the Lord the first fruits come to the Lord then the rest is left for you that comes out of that and so Jesus was ro- rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits if you take your bibles and, and turn with me i want to show you how this is incorporated into the language of the new testament 1 corinthians 15 that entire chapter is the resurrection chapter where Paul is arguing for the validity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. By the way, people don't rise from the dead every day. Right? We, we kind of just take that, but we're really talking about something that historically is an amazing event. Right? It's hard to get your head around it sometimes. And, um, but in this chapter, he uses this, and I'm, I'm just going to pull a part of it. I'm looking at verses 20 to 23. You can... By the way, as you head towards Easter, as we uh, come towards Easter, you might want to read this chapter and just uh, have some uh, time in this chapter. Look what Paul says about the resurrection. But he says this, But in fact, Christ, this would be the Lord Jesus, Christ or Messiah, has been raised from the dead. And what's the term he uses there? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea here is that the wave offering is is present that Christ is the first fruits of those who come alive from the dead. And then after that, all the rest of us will follow. Jesus first, then the dead in Christ, and then those who are still alive in Christ. That order, those three steps. 
All will come alive. But of that, Jesus is the first fruits or the first one. For as by man came death, and by man also came the resurrection. I'm sorry. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so this idea is that Jesus is a sweeping in terms of this event in that not only has he risen from the dead, but all who place their faith in him will also be saved and brought along with him uh, to rise from the dead. But Jesus, again, is the first fruits of all who will rise from the dead. And so what you find here is that uh, the, the festivals carry uh, an enormous um, connection uh, for the festivals. And then there's one other one. We're familiar with this story. Later in the early church is what we call the Feast of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came down on the uh, disciples as tongues of fire, and then people heard them talking in their native languages, right? They were still there for Passover, and they heard them talking in all the different languages from the different lands they came by, and they were like, wow, what is this? They heard the sound of the rushing wind. They went to where the sound came from, and then they heard all these people talking to them in, in all these different languages, Egyptian and, and uh, Roman Greco and um, Italian and all these different languages around the world where they come from. They said, wow, how is this happening? And some said... You're right? There's always a mocker in the crowd. Ah, they're just drunk. Right? There's always somebody who's a skeptic and just, yeah, they're just drunk. And Peter stands up and says, hello, no, wait a minute. We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Right? That, that was the time it was. So he said, we're not drunk. And, um, and so my, Peter goes on and he, he starts with this message that he's talking about. We're going to look at that in a second. But Pastor Mark Blitz points out here at this point, that this is what we call Pentecost, but Israel had been, been celebrating Pentecost for 1,500 years. All right? They called it Shabbat. Same idea. All right? They called it Shabbat. And theirs was an incredible picture because their Shabbat was what? It was the day that Moses brought down the Ten Commandments from off the mountain. All right? Remember that story? Moses goes up, right? And gets the tablets from God written by the finger of God. It'd been interesting to see that, wouldn't it? I just always thought, boy, that'd be so cool. To just what did that look like, you know? But it's written with the finger of God. And Moses came down and remember the story. Uh, they kind of got distracted, kind of a human thing to do. They started playing, kind of a human thing to do, and they started worshiping another god, kind of a human thing to do. And so when Moses comes down, Joshua hears this noise and he says, hey, there's war in the camp. And Moses says, that is not the sound of war. That is the sound of singing, i.e. drunken singing. All right. And so debauchery had taken over. So Moses comes down, smashes the tablets, takes the, the golden calf. Ask Aaron, how did this calf show up? I don't know. I just took the jewelry through the fire and it showed up. Doesn't that sound like a five-year-old thing? Right. That's exactly what a five-year-old would say. I didn't do it. Just showed up, you know. And, and so he ground it through in the water, made him drink it. But it says a plague broke out. And so on the giving of the law, 3,000 people died that day. Right? So you have the giving of the law, and we're not finding fault with the law, we're finding fault with what happened during the giving of it. 
And that day, 3,000 people died. And so that's called Shabbat. That is the giving of the, God giving Moses the, the Torah or the law. So in Ten Commandments. Take that same day and move forward 1,500 years and you have the Holy Spirit coming on the church. And in this case, instead of a law being given and 3,000 people dying, the, law, the life of the Spirit is given and 3,000 people are saved on the same morning. Now that's quite a sermon, right? There isn't a pastor worth his two bits that wouldn't want to be able to buy that, put it in his pocket, whip it out one Sunday and have 3,000 people come to Christ. That would be kicking awesome, right? But here's the deal. It didn't just happen on a morning. How could that message have that much power? How could that message speak to that many people and that many people respond all at once? Well, I'm going to tell you in a second. But before I do that, guys, if you're serving communion, would you come forward and begin to serve? And if you and the rest of you watching, would you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2? How could it be that that message is given and 3,000 people respond on that morning? I want to suggest to you, they didn't just respond. They knew their history. They knew their object lessons. They knew what God had put in place. They knew the festivals. And not only did they knew the festivals, but they knew what had gone on in Jerusalem with Jesus. And they knew what had happened. And they knew about the cross. They knew about the burial. They also knew that something had happened and there was the claim that he was alive and had risen from the dead. And they were extremely impacted and struck because they knew the parallels. They had been rehearsing as we said, those parallels for 1,500 years. And when it came out, and when it came time, Peter stood up among them, and I want to read to you what he said to them. I'm starting here in uh, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, and look at what he says, with mighty works, with wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That's not just the miracles he worked. That's not just the good things he did for people. They knew there was something eerily spectacular with what had just happened on the last Passover. There were too many coincidences. There were too many things that lined up. There were too many things that played out that went, this is not just by chance. This isn't just kind of rolling up. This is like it was almost planned that way. You ever hear people say that? Right? It's almost by design. Peter's saying, it was. With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, i.e. your eyewitnesses, you were there, you watched it. This Jesus delivered up according to a definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's a very seeker-friendly message. All right? You didn't get that, did you? He goes right after him. He says, you participated in it. You approved it. You helped with putting him to death. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then go down to verse 36. I'm going to skip all the Old Testament quotes because he talks about David and all that. But uh, you can look at that if you want to go back there. 
But he says, let all the house, in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, i.e. be utterly convinced, that God has made him, this, this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This message had an incredible, it was a bullet. Okay? It was dead center on the target, and they knew it. Go back up to where it says, um, when Peter preached verse 37, it's when Peter said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There wasn't anybody there that didn't know about that. Word had run wild with what had gone on during the Passover. This is 50 days later, Pentecost. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart means you're filleted open. Cut to the heart means you don't have any more defenses. Cut to the heart means you don't have any more smart aleck answers or quick or clever comebacks. You're filleted open. You're laid bare. You're like, you see it for what it is. And you're wrecked by it. You ever been there? Right? Just tattooed. Nowhere to squirm. Nowhere to wiggle. Nowhere to get around. You can't dodge it. You can't elude it. It hits you smack right in the face, right in your brain, right in your soul. You are. It says they were cut to the heart. I.e., there's no more defenses left. said they watched, they saw, they looked at the parallels. And when Peter laid it out for them, it says they were filleted. And in freaked out agony, they said, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. You know, and it's highly likely in a group like this, there are someone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus, has never looked at those circumstances, just kind of always passed it off as, well, Jesus is a good teacher, or church is a nice thing to do. Nice thing to do, but you've never come to the place where you said, I need to make this Jesus who was crucified my Lord and Savior. That stuff wasn't just coincidence. That wasn't just clever uh, manipulating and stuff being laid out. That was God showing his hand. All the things that God had said, and it shall come to pass, came to pass in Jesus. The fulfillment of all the promises of the old scripture were fulfilled in him. And I sh- I've never closed that deal. I've never said, you know what, Lord Jesus, I need to repent and ask you into my heart. And there might be someone here today that's like that. And I would encourage you, that would be a good thing to do to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior before you take communion. Kind of makes sense, right? And so this morning, here's how you say that. Lord, I've been wrong. I've been resistant. I've been stubborn. I've stayed outside. I haven't let you enter in. And just walking through and looking at the correlations this morning, I recognize you are who you claim to be. And if you're who you claim to be, then I need to change. And I need to let you into my heart. I need to surrender and ask you to become my Lord and Savior. And I need to give up 
the reins of my life and put that in your hands and trust you with it. If that's your prayer this morning, if you were following along with me and your heart said, boy, that rings right, that's true, that's where I need to go, then you pray that prayer. And you say, Lord Jesus, what Pastor said, that rings true in my heart and I agree. I need to do that. Come up after, let me know, and we'll talk and how you can keep going in your faith. But why did so many respond? Why so many responded is because all of that came together when Peter laid it out. They went, boom! Yikes! Oh my goodness! We're dead! We put him to death! Ah! What do we do? And so many were so aware of all these things that we laid out from Jewish history and all that had rolled out through Scripture, they went, He has to be the Christ. He had to be the Son of God. And 3,000 people came to faith that day. Later on, you hear 4,000. Later on, you hear more. And it just spread like wildfire because people knew what God had laid out had been fulfilled in Jesus, the Son, the Christ. You know, that Seder meal that... uh, so foreshadowed Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. If you're messianic, it's Yeshua, right? We now call that communion. The love feast. How the bride comes together. And, and there's two elements. One is a piece of bread, right? This is just a white piece of bread. But if you go back to the Seder, you, you have the matzah bread. Matzah is striped for the wounds that Jesus would incur and then also pierced. says he was pierced for our transgression. And what's Jesus, what was the picture there? I will pay your price. What God was saying through history, I will cover you. You don't have to stand on your own merit. I will pay it. And it's a symbol of bread, bread of life. Jesus says, when you come to communion, You're remembering, and I would say this morning, not just Easter Sunday, but you're remembering all the history that God rolled up all the way back to Abraham. You're unfolding that whole thing and saying, I see who you were, I see your hand in it, and I see that you paid the price for me. Jesus said, eat this in memory of me. And there's two pictures for the cup. One is blood. In our generation, that's icky because we didn't grow up on farms. Right? You grow up on a farm, it's a fairly normal thing. And we go, oh, blood. Have you ever smelled blood? It smells gross. Right? And uh, it got thrown up against the altar and we go, oh, that's awful. It is. But was it signifying? That's the only way our sin could be covered for. It says, without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. What God's trying to show us? How awful our sin is. We don't think our sin is awful. We don't think it smells. We don't think it's dirty. We don't think it's that bad. And God says, from my standpoint, where I'm looking, it's worse than the blood being thrown against the altar. That's how icky and awful it is. God says it takes that kind of sacrifice to try and cover it. But then the second picture of the cup is that of covenant. Right? Often, wine is used for making covenants together. And this is, I will make a covenant with you. What does Jesus say? I am with you. 
No matter what generation you grew up in, no matter where you come from, no matter what your nationality or your race or whatever, I am with you. I will never leave you or never forsake you. Behold, I am with you till the end of the age. He has not forgotten his church. He will never forget his church. If he can forget his soul, then he'll forget his church. Why? Because he is all of history is being rolled out as an object lesson for his redemptive purposes. And church, it's time we start looking up and remembering. Why? Because Jesus says, when you drink this, you do this in memory of me. Let's pray this morning. Father, when I look at this, and it's, it's, you're either one of two things. You're either a fabulous engineer or you are an amazing mystery writer. You are able to weave things in place over years and decades and generations to where when it plays out, it is absolutely astounding. And it is so baffling to look at it in the present and it looks clear as mud and then to look back and go, Oh my goodness, how could we have missed it? And Lord, we'd admit to you, we, we could look at the nation of Israel and say, how could they have missed it? And the truth is, Lord, we could miss it right now. We could get our hearts like them set on other things. We could get our hearts set on other purposes. But Lord, communion is to draw us back to the purity of the original cause. The purity of our love for you the purity of our surrender to You, the purity of You as our first love. And You're drawing us back and You're talking to us and may we look at this that we covered this morning, not just as history or fun object lessons, but Your incredible attempt to capture the attention of people long before they even showed up. That You were thinking of us. That You had us in Your mind. Lord, when we come to Easter, we are coming up against the most spectacular event in human history. And you had objects lessons for 2,000 years before. It's amazing. We're stunned and awed. We pray that you'd accept our worship in your name. Amen.